We're in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, and I'm still wrestling over how to present this story to you. Um, we, we've been working our way through, through Mark, and so I'm going to read the text broken, and so you can just follow along, and then I'll explain after I read why I did what I did. I think is the best way. So we're in Mark chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 12. We'll read through verse 16. And then I'll read verse 30. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we ask that you would help us uh, to navigate this story. This is a, a, just a, a great narrative. Um, this, the story that unfolds here uh, is 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 uh, kind of sleazy is is uh, is uh, horrific in nature and what happened and um, Father, I pray that you would help us to fill the darkness of today's story and that we would be able to learn from it um, in our own lives so this 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 tale between uh, Herod Antipas and and John the Baptist, and the apostles, and Jesus, and uh, really is a, a, a tale of, of contrast between lightness and darkness. And, and so, Father, we pray uh, that you would help us to learn and to grow uh, through this story. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> they, the apostles that had been sent out two by two, went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah, and others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for your word. We ask that you would guide us now. Uh, as we navigate this, this story, uh, we ask that it would come alive to us, Lord. May your spirit illuminate the text, help us to see um, principles that apply to us, Lord. Help us to be uh, convicted and drawn to you, Lord, through the story. Help us to see Jesus for who he is. And Lord, may we ultimately grow closer to you uh, through this time of worshiping you, through the studying of your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. So, so Mark is known for these things called sort of Marconian sandwiches, where he, he starts a story, he inserts another story, and then he kind of concludes the story. Um, t today's another example of this. I want to frame it so that, so that we kind of understand um, what's happening here. So, so we've, from verses 1 through 6, or 1 through 12, or 13, in the chap six, chapter 6, the story is that Jesus has called his apostles to himself. They've just been rejected out of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. Jesus then says, I'm going to send you out two by two. Stay within the house of Israel. They're, they're going about their people, so they're, they're going out two by two. Uh, they're preaching a message of repentance, that the kingdom has drawn near, that the Messiah has arrived. Um, then... We come to verses 14 through 16, and as they go out as ambassadors for Jesus, the, the, the fame, the reputation of Jesus continues to expand, and uh, the, the works that Jesus had been doing and is doing through his ambassadors, the apostles, had made its, made its way into the, the quote-unquote king which I'll explain in a second, the, the king's uh, palace. 
And all sorts of people are sort of speculating what's going on. Who is this Jesus? And then at the very end in verse 30, we see that the apostles are done with their short-term mission. They come back. They report everything to Jesus. We don't know what happened. We're not told other than verse 13 or 12 and 13 that they were preaching that men should repent. We are told um, that they were casting out demons. They were anointing the sick and healing the sick. And so things were going well. Um, and so now we'll just sort of dive into the, the text um, for these first few verses. And so we read, And King Herod heard of it, for his name had been well known. And hopefully I didn't think, it, oh good, it's there, the pointer. In your bulletins you have this flow chart. Um, so some have said, we need this flow chart. It's going to take me a little bit to sort of navigate things here. So when we, you, you hear King Herod, uh, you think of a family tree. Some have said his family tree is more like a vine than it is a tree. Or as Beth Howard, who's from uh, South Carolina, she often says that many people from the South, they don't have family trees, they have family wreaths because they're sort of interconnected. And so right away, we run into some, some issues, not, not issues, but, but you can miss it. So I'm going to try to make sense of what you have in your bulletin because it's kind of important. So we read King Herod. So you think, okay, King Herod, which, which one are we talking about? Are we, um, and so uh, the, the father is Herod the Great. So this is Herod the Great on top of the flow chart here. Each bar represents generations from him. Um, this Herod the Great is the one who, uh, he, this little line here, he tried to kill Jesus. We know this, the Christmas story that uh, he, he tried to kill Jesus when he was born. He, um, super paranoid man. When that happened, Jesus was born. They fled to Egypt until he died. It's believed that he died in about 4 BC. You think, well, how it could be 4 BC when Jesus was born? Let's just say the dating of the calendar didn't change until Jesus was much older and, and trying to al- align things. But when they realized that he had died, they basically relocated back up to Nazareth. And so I have notes here because this is like a real uh, like soap opera trying to figure everything out. So about the dad... Herod the Great. Uh, it was Caesar Augustus who said that he would rather be a pig of Herod's than one of his sons. And the truth is a pig in Herod's household was a much safer place to be. Um, so he killed his favorite wife. So I don't know how favorite or how you define favorite, but it's known that he killed his favorite wife. Uh, he had 10 of them. So he killed his favorite one because he feared uh, that she was having an affair on him, that there was some infidelity. Um, He also killed his uncle, his mother-in-law, and three of his sons. He was deeply insecure and paranoid. That's kind of an understatement. Um, He always felt threatened, not because of credible threats, but because his ego was fragile. And... So his method of dealing with these insecurities was by killing people and destroying things. So um, in our house, we call those anger volcanoes. And so anger volcanoes aren't allowed in our house, but his mom never taught him that anger volcanoes are not okay. And so he was, to say that he was an evil man is an understatement. He, um, I still think I don't want to, I don't want to get rid of my notes just yet. Okay, yeah, I'm going to, there's more to come, but I'm going to just give you a little bit more, and then we'll, we'll let this absorb. So, so Herod the Great, when he died, his estate, when it settled, it left um, four of his sons um, in control of his kingdom. So these are wives, Okay. Just these red dots up here, these are wives of him. Not all his wives, because there's other wives over here. So there's like the little boxes on the left, those are wives that they don't really make the story. 
then there's these four wives. The reason they make the story is because they have sons that then were entered into the story. So from these three wives, he had four sons, Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip, Philip the Tetrarch. Um, they, this guy plays in today's, today's story, and Herod Antipas plays in today's story. Um, if you can imagine the Sea of Galilee, it's a lake, and I'm not going to use my fingers because I'll be backwards for you guys. So if you imagine the, the lake going from south to north, um, south of the lake there's the Jordan River which flows down to the Dead Sea. So if you imagine the Jordan River just continuing north through the Sea of Galilee and then you go to the west where Capernaum is, the, the region of Galilee, this region was inherited by Herod Antipas. If you go east of it, it was Philip the Tetrarch who who got that kingdom or, or that region. And uh, I'm trying to figure out just a little bit of the history. When this happened, the Jews, the zealots who had settled in the, the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, they had real issue with this. So they petitioned uh, to the Caesar in Rome that, they, that he would sort of uh, not allow this, this will and trust to go through. But ultimately, Caesar said, no, the, the trust is good. It's settled. Um, The reason, okay, the point why I'm here, when we read King Herod, it's almost like, I don't know if if Mark is being careful, but there's a little bit of drama connected to this because there was really only one King Herod. There was Herod the Great who was the king. These boys, these four boys, they really each wanted the title king to continue on to them. Um, they petitioned the Caesar to say, you have to make, make us king. Tell us that we're kings. And they, he said, no, you guys aren't kings. You're not going to do it. And, and so that really rubbed them the wrong way. So really there's Herod Antipas. And that's really who's in view here. And I, I think his subjects referred to him as king probably because it was just safer for them that way. And so I don't know if... He's referring to King Herod in this way just to play it safe. That's enough of the family line for now. So we read, and King Herod heard of it. What did he hear about? He, he heard about these miracles that Jesus was doing, these, these healings, these great crowds that were flocking all around the world, descending within the region that he controlled. It eventually made its way up into his palace. And, and so he's hearing about Jesus. And there's all sorts of speculation about who this Jesus was. They were really grappling with this. Uh, clearly, he was doing things. He's teaching. He's drawing clouds, crowds. He's, he's healing. And we read here, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and this is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So there's this, this one rumor is kind of going around that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Now, if you're reading the Gospel of Mark for the first time with, in a vacuum, not knowing any outside of information, you would suddenly read, John the Baptist is dead? What? Mark hasn't mentioned this to us. Um, the, the last we see of John the Baptist is that he'd been taken into custody, and I think it's chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. He's taken into custody. That's all we've heard. And so if you're reading this, it's like, wait, whoa, whoa. John the Baptist was killed? How was he killed? But we don't know. Mark hasn't given us this information. But some people were saying that he was killed, he, he was risen from the dead, and now he's sort of like haunting everybody, and he's doing these things because he was executed. Or, well, he's risen from the dead. We don't even, I, I filled in the blank that he was executed. It, he doesn't tell us that. Um, then others in verse 14 were saying that he's Elijah. This great Old Testament prophet who never tasted death. He was taken up into heaven. This is another idea. And then others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Now remember when Jesus came on scene, really when John the Baptist came on scene, John the Baptist very much is a prophet of the Old Testament that wanders onto the pages of the New Testament. Prior to John the Baptist, God had been silent for 400 years and there had been no prophet. We know this historically as a silent 400 years. It just makes sense. 
And so there hadn't been a whole lot of prophetic uh, activity. And so John the Baptist comes on scene. Suddenly it's like God is speaking. And Jesus is kind of following in his wake. And so like this is like one of the prophets in the Old Testament that we've read about. We, God used to work like this, so maybe God's moving again. In verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, notice that it says he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. So now we know how John died. Mark fills in the blanks that, that, that basically Herod had him executed. He cut off his head. And he keeps saying this. And it implies a very guilty conscience. He knows what happens. He knows what happened to him. He hears about all this stuff. He's feeling terrible. It's, it's gnawing at him. And I don't know if you've ever had a sin that you've done that you think is so horrible that there's no way that God can forgive you and all you can do is like suppress it and keep it down. But your conscience just keeps just eating you up. And so here this, this powerful, evil man had killed John. And it's, distur- it's just troubling him. He's, he's in his very wealthy palace, has the power to do whatever he wants. And yet, in that security, he can't get away from the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he'd done something wrong. And it's troubling him. Um, so the part that I didn't read, 17 through 29, the, the reason I didn't read this is this is what in Scripture is sort of a, a parenthetical insert. So, so, so John knows that we don't have any of this information. He's, all he said about Jesus, going back to chapter 1 verse, about Jesus, about John, excuse me, So in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, we read, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Um, As he was going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, Andrew, and he started calling his disciples. So basically, as soon as John was taken out of the picture, that was the cue for Jesus to begin his ministry. There was was the, the handoff of the baton, that John led up as the forerunner to Jesus. Jesus took the baton and began running with it. Mark focuses exclusively on Jesus, which makes today's section all the more odd. Or I don't know odd's the right word, but it should sort of stop us in the text because John is so, John, Mark is so focused on the person and work of Jesus that the fact that he spends so much time about telling us about John the Baptist should make us wonder why is he talking about John the Baptist. This has to be important. And so he is going to fill us in on the details, past tense, of what had happened. And so verse 17, if this was a movie that we're watching unfold, there'd be like a flashback scene and say, two years ago on this day, this is what happened. And I don't know the timing. We do know that John the Baptist was in prison for two years. Uh, He was held in custody for that long. And so... So sometime after his execution, this happens. So just speculation. Now on this scene that we're about to read, Charles Swindoll says this. With vivid storytelling, he, that's Mark, transports us from our sanitized world of comfort and stability to a time when rulers did as they pleased. He rips us from our homes to a place, from our homes to a place I, my, my, my words aren't coming out right, from our homes to, uh, to place us in a sleazy setting of pulsating music, filthy jokes, sensual dancing, too much alcohol, and too little moral restraint. For 16 verses, we must observe the shameful inner court of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great and Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. So the things that are going to unfold here, um, due to the, the reality that I try to keep sermons at about the PG-13 level, um, 
like you can't, this would be like not rated for 17 and below if this was a movie. Like, like if this story was to be untold, this would be horrific, bordering on pornographic of the things that happened in this story. So this is dark, dark, evil situation that's unfolding. Um, So verse 17, let's just get into it. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Uh, this is where I need the slide in my notes behind us. This is, where the, this is where things get really interesting. Okay, so we talked about Herod the Great. Then we have these four sons that inherited the kingdom. This little green bubble, this is another son of Herod the Great who isn't really important. So there's no name there. He becomes important because of the offspring. So you have King Herod Agrippa I, and you have Herodias, who is in today's story. So this Herodias who's mentioned, she's in today's story, and Herod Antipas is in today's story. So the Herod Antipas, this is the guy in today's story. Um, Okay. I'm going to walk through very slowly with this with you all. So Philip, this guy over here, I got the right one? No, wrong one. I'm like, the heart's in the wrong spot. Tell you, the family, it's a family wreath, not a family tree. Um, So you have Herod Philip right here. So I pointed to the wrong Philip earlier today. So this is the Philip that that has the kingdom to the the east. Um, He married his niece. So that's his half-brother. He had a child, Herodias. She marries the uncle. Trying to follow the story. So while on a trip to Rome, Herod and Herodias started an affair. Herod convinced Herodias to leave Philip, to to leave this guy, and to marry him. Herod's current wife found out about it, and she fled to her father, which adds a little bit more drama because her dad was a king of Damascus area. Um, Herodias left Philip and was married to Herod. Um, But Herodias and Philip had a daughter, Salome, who is the daughter in today's story, who um, has John's head taken off, which we'll see. So she asked for the head of John the Baptist. Apparently she married her great uncle, I guess that would be. Um, So in today's story, Salome was about 16 or 17 years old, so she would have been of marrying age. Um, what Herod did, so on the political side, it was, a, it was a, a political disaster because you're, you're married to one, one of his wife's political reasons. The father is the, the ruler of Damascus, which would be up farther away. And so now he does away with her. She flees back. So now between Galilee and Damascus, there's going to be political strains. And then you snag your brother's wife, who's also your niece, and his niece, which is a, a bordering territory between the area you own. And so this is just a mess. So let me just read verse 17 again. So for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Now, this is the key part here. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John the Baptist is awesome. If you read his account, he's literally dressed in like sackcloth, braided hair, like, like almost like Daniel. You know, if we dressed him Daniel, like long hair, beard, 
if I had some like locusts and honey to feed Daniel, we'd ha- like we'd. And he's in the Jordan River. This holy, righteous man, he, the cousin of Jesus, who was born six months prior as the forerunner, is is like this scene. Is he's in the river, calling out people for their sin, like not like we do it, delicately. This is he's naming their sin. And then Herod shows up. I hope I've made the case about this dynasty, about how evil and wicked and brutal this family is. And yet Herod gets close enough to John the Baptist where John the Baptist like, hey, you, king up on the river, yeah, you, you're in sin. You stole your brother's wife. I'm sure there's a whole lot of other things. And so he starts calling the king out who has the authority to kill him. He's calling him out over and over and over and over again. Now, the wife in the challenge, who is the stolen one, she has issues with this. She holds a grudge. She doesn't like this. Um, Verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. So this whole time, Herodias, she's, she's the wife of, of Herod Antipas or King Herod. She has authority to do what she wants. Uh, she could have had him killed. Herod knows this. And we're told later that even though John the Baptist is calling out Herod, he kind of likes it. Like, it's, it's kind of... Um, He had a certain amount of respect for him. And, and so we're told in verse 24, Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So there's all sorts of speculations about him. So he, he, he arrests him to, to basically keep him safe from being executed. He also, so the... the the speculation on why he arrested him and, and why would he keep him safe for these two years, um, the, the list goes on and on. One very viable reason is um, Herod had a lot of power, but he also, the like politicians, they have to dance a fine dance to keep everybody happy. And, and so he's already done enough within the family relationships to cause some strain, There's uh, the king of the northern region of Damascus where the wife that he basically abandoned, uh, there's now strain there. Then he has to appease Rome and no revolt, nothing can happen there. And, And so he knows that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, even though John was causing some friction, he knew that he was a righteous man and he knew, uh, there was something special about him that if anything happened to him, it could be cause for revolt. It could be cause for social unrest. And, and that couldn't happen in, uh, under his watch. Charles Swindoll pitches an idea that I think is also very interesting in addition to the, the social rest. He, he thinks that, um, that Herod Antipas being such an immoral guy so far in darkness that to encounter a guy like John the Baptist, he'd never encountered somebody that was so laser focused on what was right and wrong and absolute righteousness that, that he was attracted to him, not like attracted to his holiness in a way because it's, it's the closest that Herod Antipas' life had ever been exposed to any sort of goodness and holiness. Um, but he's got a wife that's bitter and angry and revenge is building within her heart about how she hates this man for calling out her sin. And so we find that, Luke, that John the Baptist is in prison. If you'll turn with me over to Luke. Luke chapter 7. There's a story over in Luke. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 28. 
Luke gives us a little bit more information about John the Baptist, what he went through while he was under arrest. trying to figure out where I want to enter in. So in verse 17, this report concerning him, that's Jesus, went out over all of Judea, that's the southern part of Israel and the surrounding district. So John is in jail. Jesus' ministry is flourishing. The report about Jesus is going everywhere like we see in today's story. In verse 18, the disciples of John reported to him about all of these things. And so they're able to go make sort of visits to him and, and while he's held in jail. And so they're reporting to him about the things that Jesus is doing. Um, verse 19, summoning, the two, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? Now remember, John the Baptist is a cousin to Jesus. To sort of to build excitement for Christmas, which is coming, you know, it's just like a few months out. You know, I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving, and then there's like the two big holidays that are coming. Um, We we read about his how he came about. Remember, his dad is at the temple service. They're both old. They're beyond childbearing years. They were never able to conceive. And he goes into the holiest of holies doing this and the angel visits him and says, you're going to have a son. And he's like, how in the world is this possible? And God says, well, I'm going to punish you and just take away your voice. And so he comes out doing charades, explaining what had happened. And then his wife conceives. They have this son that was set apart from birth to be the forerunner of Christ. And and, and so John and Jesus' lives were connected together basically from conception, like in the womb, that John leapt in the womb. And his whole ministry was announcing this one who is coming. He was the one that was in the Jordan River that Jesus comes to him and he says, I'm not worthy to be baptized. Like, I, I, I cannot baptize you. He knew clearly his mission in relationship to the Lord, that he was a nothing like us. We're nobodies. We're simply a voice crying out in the wilderness about the one who matters. And yet after all of this, here he is incarcerated and he has doubts. And when I read about John the Baptist's doubts, I am so encouraged because we have doubts. Like, there are times in our lives when we can't put all the pieces together about what is, what is God doing in the midst of my life as everything's falling apart. And it's encouraging to me that this John the Baptist who will read that Jesus identifies as the greatest man that was ever born of a woman. The forerunner of Christ, this great prophet, he is going through a difficult time and he sends his two disciples to go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, your cousin John, he's asking us, are, are you the one? Are you the anointed one? Are you the one that we're expecting? And I love that Jesus meets John's doubts, his, his fears, his apprehensions, and, and he does the same thing for us. Verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and gave sight to those who were blind. So in my mind, they go to Jesus, they ask the question, and it's like a fireworks show, the grand finale. You know, it's like you're watching fireworks and you go, are we at the end yet? Are we at the end yet? Are we at the end yet? And you see a whole bunch of, I think we're at the end. Then all of a sudden, it's like the whole sky explodes. It's like, oh, this is it. This is the grand finale. Everything's rocking. It's like they come to Jesus. It's like, well, he's not going, choo, choo, choo. I don't know how he's doing it, but he's, he suddenly heals all of these people right in their midst. 
And in verse 22, he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. So now they have a firsthand account of everything that they just saw. And then he quotes, the, the blind receive sight, the, lie, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who doesn't take offense at me. And when the messengers of John left, so they go report back to John to give John the assurance that he needs in the midst of his living a faithful life, kind of hitting a like turbulence in the air, like, is this really real? Is he really the one? And Jesus brings assurance to him. And then Jesus turns to the people that are there after they're gone, and he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal places. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is like, Jesus gives no greater compliment. Like, the, the closest compliment that I can hear is the centurion in, that had the faith that Jesus said, I've seen no great faith in all of Israel. But clearly he puts John as the top of all men. It's powerful. And so now we continue back in our text in Mark. Midway through verse 20. So verse 20 we read, For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So as, as John was calling him out, there was, I think it was the Holy Spirit kind of like going, this is truth. What he's saying is true. You know what he's saying is true. Respond. Respond. Herod could have repented. He could have gotten right with God. But, but he never crossed that line. And on verse 21, a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday, it was, I was listening to this on my birthday, on Monday was my birthday, and my birthday, I just kind of lounged around the house and didn't do anything. That's my idea of a party, so this, none of this seems really appealing to me. But I want to point out strategic day. Why is it a strategic day? It's a strategic day because his wife has been plotting, how can I kill John? There's this huge party. She knows the things that are going to unfold at this party, and so she has put together a plan. So a strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So this is a party of men. This is a stag. I think, no, stag, is that for single? Whatever it is. It's a guy party, a bachelor. No, not bachelor, because they're kind of married. It's a guy party. And these are all of the most powerful men in his, his control. And when the daughter of Herodias, we know this is Salome, the one down here. Uh, which it just makes me think about her. Like there's just so many questions. Like she's got her mom is kind of mad for being called out. But then her dad lost his wife to this guy. So she's got like stepdad who she doesn't like at all. Like, there's all sorts of room for bitterness, anger, uh, payback. Like, all of this is in that story. So the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced. And, and so this, they, they say that this was very well known. So this is like, so like a notch kind of above a prostitute but below like a performer. Um, 
often by the end of the night, there, there would be sexual exchanges. So this is the sleaziest of sleazy. 16 to 17 years old, she's coming in and she's dancing and she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it, up to, give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now he's not speaking literally that I'll give her up to, uh, up to half his kingdom. This is uh, hyperbole. This is, uh, he's saying just whatever your request, I'll give it to you. So the girl knew what she was supposed to do. She knew that she was supposed to go in there and she knew she was supposed to dance. She knew that she was supposed to like raise the excitement level to where uh, Herod Antipas would, would be foolish. Um, but she didn't know what she, what she was supposed to do when that point came. And so she runs out. So immediately she came in a hurry to the... Wait, wait, wait. I got ahead of myself. And Verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? Mommy's doing it. He said anything. Where do you want me to go with this? And she said, the mother, the head of John the Baptist. Sick. I mean, this, this, I mean, verse 25, immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And, and so in the Greek, it actually reads for more dramatic effect um, that John the Baptist is the very last words that she spoke. So kind of start out with, like, well, I want a fancy silver platter with John the Baptist's head. So it goes from like a silver platter to like, oh, And so now, Herod has given his word in front of all of his buddies, all of these powerful men. How's he going to navigate this? He just set himself up to be taken in a foolish, foolish way. Um, You see this in Scripture, just people making stupid vows, and then they, like, eat the vows. And I think we do stupid things like this all the time. And I use the word stupid, like, like that's an intentional, like you make a promise and then it comes and it's like, what was I thinking? And so verse 26, the king was very sorry. Like I don't, I don't, I don't sense that this is like that he was sorry that he put him, like he was this is like he's sorry that he's now in this pickle. Because, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. So here's another moment. He's convicted from the very beginning. John is a holy man. I'm protecting him. I've made this foolishness in, in a drunken party Amongst all of these men, I said I would do whatever. She comes and says this. Now what do I do? Do I lose face and say, I'm sorry, you can't do that like anything else, kid? That's probably what he should have done and said, sorry, kid. That's not going to happen. But the text tells us that he has peer pressure, which is a whole other talk about peer pressure, especially for young people. Like once you start getting older, you start, stop caring what people think about you. And I think that it keeps going until the day you die as I watch it and like older people, like just that they're just like, I don't care. But there's that young age when you're so influenced by what people think and you'll do things in foolishness to try to please people who really don't even care for you. And then you make these stupid decisions that have lasting implications in your life. Like, I literally think about, like, I don't know the whole story, but just the, I just heard of the story in Ohio about this girl that gets pregnant and then gives birth in her backyard, and it seems like she kills the baby and burns it and buries it in the back. Like, where did this, where did this start? Peer pressure of doing something she probably knew wasn't right, and then, like, all along, confront, like, being seen by the doctor, and the doctor said that he's 
bound that he can't tell the parents of this young child, which another, like, the parents would have helped her. There's just so many examples of peer pressure leading people into really bad places. So he pushes through his conscience. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and he had him beheaded in the prison and he brought his head on a platter and he gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to his mother. So this really fancy silver platter. They cut off, I've never cut off anybody's head so I don't really know how this goes down but it's like, I just picture this bloody mess. I've had goat head so I kind of know, like, can't get distracted here. Head on the platter, give it to the little girl. No, no, give it. Who does he give it to? Let me follow this through. Um, he brought his head on a platter and he gave it to her. I got it right. And then the girl gives it to her mother. And she's happy. Got him. That'll teach you to call me out for my life. A.T. Robertson uh, has a great quote. It cost him his head but it's better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. Persecution may come your way for following Christ. John the Baptist never backed down. Uh, When his disciples, John's disciples, heard of it, they came and they took away his body and they laid him in a tomb. So now Mark has given us the rest of the story. And if you were reading this for the first time, you should be like gagging. I can't believe how horrific this is. But then he just launches right back into verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported him all they had seen and done. And taught. I skipped a word there. And so the question is, how does the story fit? And and I think we have to remember the the context. He's giving us information. We can't deny the importance of of John's life. Um, This man, Jesus reports, as being the most important life and the power that he had. He was blatantly confronting sin of of the nation. So not, not for judgment, but so that they would get their hearts right before God so that when the the true judge came, they were ready to receive him. Um, I think sometimes our life as Christians, you you know, Christians all the time get a bad rap that we judge other people. And and I'm I'm sure it's true in in probably some or many cases that we, everybody judges that. I mean, there's judgments that are made. But I don't always think that the, the saying is, fair to Christians because I think what happens a lot of the time is you live your life for Christ. I see it all the time and I go into an environment, I walk in, they know I'm a pastor and they swear and I don't say anything, I don't care. Like, I've, like uh, I was in the military for 12 years. Like I've heard every, like it's not, like there's nothing that I'm going to take offense. Like I'm just not going to take offense. It doesn't even flash, but then they see me and they're like, oh, I'm sorry for offending you. It's like, oh, I think. Well, first I kind of smiled. I was like, no big deal. And I think to myself, it's not me you should be worried about offending. It should be God. That you're, you know? <laughs> like, that's, that's who you're really convicted by, and I'm just making his presence known to you. But so often, Christians take the blame for the conviction that non-believers feel because the Spirit of God is convicting them of their sin, and it's highlighted when a believer comes near them. There's a story, I think it's John Stott tells, so John Stott is this famous theologian, and uh, he, he had a buddy that was like in upper echelon of society, and he was not a believer, and he had the opportunity to go golfing with Billy Graham. This story is well known, and, and apparently they were like warming up on the golf course, like getting ready to start their game, and 
Before they start at the first tee, this guy storms off and is like, I'm not playing with you guys. I'm not getting involved. I'm not participating. And he goes to the, like, the putting green, and he's like, doing his own thing. And the, the friend comes over and is like, man, what happened? Like, why are you acting like this? And he's like, I'm not going to spend 18 holes with this guy preaching at me, lecturing me, talking about religion. I can't take any more of it. And the guy looks at him, he's like, I'm, like, I'm sorry. I, I totally missed it. What did Billy Graham say to you? And the guy's like, he's like, well, in all truthfulness, he, he, he's just there. Like, he hasn't said anything to me. <laughs> and so if you're walking with Christ, don't be surprised if this happens to you. Like, I wasn't, like, what do you, I was, like, I was thinking about the golf game. Like, I'm going to shake these, like, I, like, whatever it is. But I believe that if we're walking with the Lord, our mere presence can be a tool by the Spirit of God to convict others. And, and, and clearly, John's life, he, he, it was ev- it, nobody questioned who John stood for, which then leads us to Herod. In this story, In verse 16, when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. I don't know how much time has gone through. He's talked to John firsthand. He's been called out by him. He was perplexed and very interested in the things that he said to him. And we know by John's message that his message was, hey, repent, get right with God. So there was a story of God's grace to King Herod. And instead of responding to the message, he doubles down, digs in his heel, and says, I'm not listening. And now he's become paranoid that Jesus is doing it, and he's like having this, the worst case scenario in his mind. This guy that he cut his head off has risen from the dead, and now he's doing all these things, and he's coming after me. Like, talk about paranoia, guilty conscience, which... I'm not going to give a guilty conscience story, but we've all had guilty. Like, raise your hand. Have you had a guilty conscience? Oh, yeah. It's horrible, isn't it? There's nothing worse than a conscience that's nagging at you. Our consciences are a good thing. And I would encourage you to, like, listen to your conscience. And if your conscience is out of alignment with Scripture or you have somebody that has a conscience that's out of alignment with Scripture, point them to Scripture. Don't tell them to go against their conscience because the problem with your conscience, if, if your conscience is giving you the warning, 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 and you step through it, then the next time you get the warning, 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 it's easier. It's easier. And then the Bible talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he talks about people that have seared their consciences. It's like a, a stake or, or a piece of flesh that's in, in a war battle and it gets cut off and they brand it to sear it so that it stops bleeding. That's the, that's the idea that your, your conscience then is rendered void. And so allow your conscience to, like allow your conscience, heed your conscience. As, as, the, as you place yourself in the word of God and the word of God is in your heart and you navigate your life, you're going to get zapped by your conscience and listen to your conscience. Your conscience isn't always perfect. That's why we put the scripture first. But there's hope for your conscience. I don't know if you're sitting here today struggling with a sin that you've committed in the past, something that you think there is no way that God can forgive you, I assure you that Jesus on the cross has paid for your sin fully and completely. I want to go to Hebrews. I want to end with Hebrews. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. I'm going to start at verse 6, I think. So verse 6, now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering 
entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the place has not yet been disclosed while the tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. So, so the, the author of Hebrews is talking about the time prior to Christ as they were making sacrifices in the temple, and he's saying these sacrifices that we're making, they can't cleanse you in the innermost place, deep within your soul, your conscience, which is where Herod was troubled most for this one horrific sin that he committed amongst many. John the Baptist has risen from the dead, the guy whose head I cut off. But then we read, In verse 10, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with the hands, that is to say, of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What he's saying is that the work of Jesus on the cross is eternal. Once and for all. You don't have to continually uh, re- renewing your salvation. If you've come to Christ in faith, you have been forgiven, period. It doesn't wash away. It's not undone. It doesn't you fall down and you sin. It's secure. He continues verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those that have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through these eternal spirit through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So on the cross, he's cleansed you from that innermost place. That sin that you think is unforgivable, there's forgiveness available to you. It's amazing. And yet we allow Satan to enter our minds and tell us that we're not forgiven because of you fill in the blank, whatever your greatest sin is. Or Satan is holding you back from receiving the gift of salvation because you have deemed yourself unworthy to receive the salvation that's been offered to you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you of the story of this this evil man, Herod, and his whole family line. They stand in stark contrast to the purity and holiness of Christ and his coming. I thank you for this prophet, John the Baptist, who paved the way, who preached this message of repentance, preparing the hearts of men and women to receive the king. It's a shame to see that Herod Antipas never received and that he violated his conscience and never did what was right. He never received this gift that he was so close to. Father, I pray for those amongst us who maybe aren't sure of who Christ is. Some might say he's a good man, was a good teacher, fill in the blank. Father, I pray that you would help each in this room to see Christ as the Messiah, the perfect one, the perfect sacrifice who died on the cross on our behalf, that it was final once and for all. I pray for those that haven't crossed the line to receive salvation. Father, I pray that you would help them to respond, that they would receive Christ as their Savior. 
It's simply by believing. It's not by works. Father, for those of us who have believed, Father, we ask that you would help us to receive and to recognize that the ultimate forgiveness that we have, that there is no sin that we have committed that Christ didn't pay for. Father, there are things in our past that haunt us, that Satan uses to discourage us, to lure us away from walking faithfully with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would lead us into godliness, that we would be like you, that we would live our lives fully surrendered, honoring you in all that we do. And it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.